everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 210. We can't prove it, not aliens. Recorded October 18th, 2015, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week is your good friend and mine, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson. Hello, Seth. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the fine folks out from these here interwebs. Glad you could join us this here evening. Chris is not with us tonight because reasons, uh, so it's just the two of us, and hopefully that will be good enough. Um, so I, I just wanted to say I, uh, my kids had their fall festival, because it's not politically correct to call it a Halloween carnival anymore, at school, and there was this raffle um thing where each class puts together a basket full of goodies usually around a theme and you you know pay a, a dollar uh, to a choice or six for five dollars tickets and you put it in and you draw anyway so we want a basket it was called the uh snow day survival kit which is funny because we get snow days once every five years but anyway among the things in the snow day survival kit was an old-fashioned um plastic pegs version of battleship um, wow. Yeah, you know, and I, I didn't think anybody would care to do that, but I've been playing that with my kids, my particularly my 11-year-old and my 7-year-old have been co- going crazy about it and I haven't won a game yet. These girls are good. I I don't think they're cheating. I think they're just really good at narrowing down and each time it hasn't been I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here. They somehow zero in exactly on my battleship and take it out and I'm and I lose. Um and and I'll take out like their destroyer, and I'll, I'll take out four of their ships. The only ship they take out is my battleship, and uh, and I lose. Um, but Hasbro wins again with a generational uh, favorite battleship. Wait a minute. So you play where if you lose your battleship, it's over. That's the rules of the game. Yes, that's why it's called battleship. Uh, we are. I've only ever played it like you know, last man standing. So. Yeah, well, the the idea is that you, um, you you take out whatever you got, but everything is there to support the battleship. And if you lose right. the battleship, you lose the battle. Uh, oh, so I've, you know, I've never played it that way. I've never read the rules to say that that's <laughs> right or wrong. It's just we've always played as as long as you've got something left, you're still in the fight. So that's just the way it's been played. Well, I'm sure the listeners will tell me I'm doing it wrong, but that's the way I've always played it. Now I'm going to have to go back and read the rules, but I'm pretty sure the rules say that the first to lose the battleship wins. If only there were some repository of information, we could research the rules of battleship. Perhaps something where we could say, all right, Schmoogle, and, uh, but you know, we'll see what happens. Um, and, and a bit of tech note, uh, I got, uh, one, not just one, but two invites for the one plus two phone. And um, while I snapped at the opportunity to buy the OnePlus One for my wife, I'm passing. I'm choosing to pass on the OnePlus Two. Um, I did, you know, I was I was there. I had uh, had the the code in my hot little hands and was ready to go. But then I just I started, you know, researching the device and uh, comparable devices out there, and um, it's good, but it's I don't think. See, here's the thing. This goes back to to. Uh, to rich white people problems, um, first world problems. Um, it's a fine phone, and they're charging five hundred ish dollars. Four eighty nine, I think, is the base uh, for the sixty four gig model. Um, that's 
that's a fine price. That's a reasonable price. Uh, in fact, it's probably um, a very uh, thin profit margin price. But considering the OnePlus One came out uh, last year at two ninety nine, a hundred, almost two hundred dollars cheaper, and the specs of the OnePlus Two aren't significantly aren't aren't a hundred percent better or eighty percent better to warrant a two hundred dollar because you can still buy the OnePlus One at two ninety nine. Um, I just I just couldn't do it. Then I started looking at other things. There's the like the Moto X Pure, which uh, pound for pound beats it in almost every spec category. And it's uh, for seventy something. It's like twenty dollars cheaper. Um, I just, I just couldn't do it. So, I, I know you don't care, Seth, but I thought the audience might care. That uh, I've just decided the one plus two is a pass. Well, see, it was one plus two hundred. That's what exactly. the two stands for. Yes. Yeah, one plus two hundred dollars. And uh, you know, according to Hasbro.com, there's a PDF for Battleship rules, and it's a uh, object of the game: be the first to sink all five of your opponent's ships. So, all right. So I've been playing it wrong for forty years. No, you've been playing the cockerel variant. So <laughs> you know. Um, actually, when you're playing with a seven-year-old, it's fine to get the game over earlier. Um, so I don't mind so much. Right. Yeah, and they're not going to be listening to this show to know that. So so it really is. See, literally all my life, that's the way we've played it. Uh, not just in my house, but with my friends, is when you sink your battleship, the the game's over. Wow. And I, I, I had never heard that. So. so it's last man standing, huh? That's how it's supposed to yes. be. I, I guess that's more exciting, maybe. But, you know, it's always been fun to, to go on a hunt and peck for the battleship. Uh, I don't, maybe you should try playing it my way sometime and see which is more fun. Yeah, um, uh, I'll take your word for it. I mean, I'm sure it would be a lot faster. You know, it's sort of like if you play Monopoly, you might want to set a limit the first to so much money or who has the most after. Otherwise, those games can last for days. So, right. you know, I like the uh, the shortened rules format. Around my house as a kid, around my grandparents' house, we played a game. We called it Chinese Checkers. It was not Chinese Checkers. I have no idea what it was. Maybe, I'm sure there was a game somewhere, but these were uh, boards that my grandfather had cut out of particle board. Uh, and there was uh, five, uh, four, because it's a square, uh, four home row things. And you had five marbles in each home row. And you had to go around the circle, throwing, rowing the dice and moving marbles until you got all the way around the board and back in your home row and if you jumped on somebody if you jumped over them you would take that marble and put that back in their home row and they have to start over again um somebody tell me what this game actually is but again we it was always something we played with just uh, a bag of 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 dime store marbles and a piece of particle board with the board cut out uh, maybe my granddad invented the game who knows um but and the, the marbles always smelled like pickles because we kept them in pickle jars uh, the things you remember. Uh, but anyway, that was one of those games that could take hours and hours and hours to play because you keep sending people back to the start. Uh, right. And uh, we we had, I remember at some point we decided there was some sort of abbreviated rules. I forget what they were. Uh, but we'd decide, you know, do we, ha- do we have time for the long game or the abbreviated game? And I know Monopoly is one of those two where there's fast variants. But sometimes the fast variants can still take two and a half to three hours. Right. Uh, Nothing like a good game of like Axis and Allies. Oh, days. A a spare few minutes. So like over Thanksgiving weekend, we would show up at at somebody's house like Wednesday night 
and open the board of Axis and Allies. And we'd stay there Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday night, Saturday, when we might finish the game before we all had to leave to go back on Sunday. Maybe. It wasn't a guarantee. Man, I I have a uh I have a I bought a box game when I was in Chicago actually. And I think I unwrapped it just to look at the pieces, but I've never actually played it and that's been I think over 5 years ago. So missed the uh board game Axis and Allies. I I play AAA still occasionally uh on the old computer. All right. So uh I guess that's all we have for our uh, mindless drivel part of the show. No, wait, that's the whole show. Uh, but let's move on to the listener feedback. Benjamin uh, thinks that maybe the aliens have the answer to part of our discussion last week. He says, hi, Mark. Last week you discussed um, about energy and progression of mankind. Here's a link which uh, fits good into your discussion. Have a look. Uh, and and we'll talk about that link in just a minute. Says, By the way, I think you're right. A quantum leap in progression must be something unexpected. Possibly this isn't something technical. For centuries, progression and technology and f- philosophy went side by side. At some point, technological process overtook the philosophical and ethical progress, and the former equally regarded discipline went into a state where technology became number one in prioritization. So maybe it's time to find new ethics for our collaboration, and maybe this will mark uh, the next step. Of course, uh, one may have have a cultural uh, uh, pessimism gap between uh, our way and the Star Trek way. It's not just a technological one. Just some random thoughts. Best wishes for you all, Benjamin. Uh, so I was stumbling a little bit through his email because Benjamin, Benjamin's primary language is German and my prim, primary language is English. And uh, between the two of us, it wasn't quite a smooth translation, but we got the point there. And I, that's, I like the idea of pessimism gap. It's not just technology. It's the fact that we humans kind of suck. You know, he talked about Star Trek and I came across an article uh, in my surfing the web uh, that talked about how the Star Trek universe would not exist without a large supply of slave labor. I didn't read it to uh, go into the theme, but I was just, you know, it was an interesting title, probably just more clickbait, but it tied in to his email. And so I figured I would share it with the world. All right. Uh, so the link that he talked about, uh, we'll go ahead and straight in, jump into that. The independent.co.uk. I don't know if that's a real newspaper or if it's like the Inquirer uh, for uh, the UK, although I think most papers kind of have an Inquirer-esque thing. At least that's the American uh, perspective of British newspapers. But mm-hmm. astronomers have uh, may found, have found th- something that may be giant, quote, megastructures orbiting a star near the Milky Way. Uh, and basically, they found something that they they're not sure what it is. Right, but it was be you know, and of course, the way in astronomy that you detect planets is you look at a star, and if the star dims, you know, then you can see oh, it's because something passed between us and the planet and then so you look at it and if it does it on a regular basis you can get more fine and go it was a planet the planet is approximately this big because that's how much the light dimmed but um so anyway and i found a similar article to this and it it might have referenced this or they might have referenced something else in business uh and what was the one i found if my stupid website would click Uh, But anyway, Business Journal, I think. Um, So it wasn't just an Inquirer thing, but they found this thing orbiting a star, and 
it had an irregular shape and it was freaking huge. And so they're trying to figure out what it is. Um, they say, you know, possible suggestions is maybe a planet has broken up or, you know, the the remnants and theory on how the planets form is, you know, the remnants of this um, debris after stars creation coalesce and gravity sucks them in, they form planets. So it could be maybe a planet broke up or a planet is about to form, or there is a theory that perhaps it's alien megastructures, something like a Dyson sphere. Um, anyway, yeah, there's a line in the article that says, as civilizations become more technologically advanced, they create new and better ways of collecting energy, with the end result being harnessing of energy directly from their star. I don't know where that comes from, but okay. Um, if the speculation about a megastructure being placed around the star system is correct, scientists say it could be a huge set of solar panels placed around the star. Or it could be monkeys flying out of my butt. The fact is, we have no idea, and some scientists said, yeah, we don't know that it is not solar panels, and so the independent.co.uk ran with that. Yeah, and uh, I found an article where people got in touch with the scientists, and they're like saying, we never said it was aliens. We basically said that we can't disprove it's not aliens because what we're seeing doesn't conform to any other thing that we've observed in nature. So interesting, you know, um, is there life out there? You know, I don't know. Maybe it's the Borg. Uh, they're coming for us and, you know, we will be assimilated and resistance truly is futile. <laughs> All right, so the next bit of listener feedback we have is from Mike, the former butcher, and he's gloating a little bit. He says, I'm sure this will send Chris into seizures, but it was just announced yesterday. Mark, you need to move two hours north and soak up all the gigabit goodness. Mike, the former butcher, now IT tech support, not uh, due in no small part uh, to the Linux Academy. Uh, but he sends us a link from The Verge saying that Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, Comcast is going to be providing them 10 gigabit internet holy cannoli 10 gigabit internet of course it's from comcast so that's up to 10 gigabits really it'll be one and a half gigabits or but you probably have like a 500 meg data cap <laughs> exactly so, you know you can you can do 10 gig but only till you run out of your 500 meg um, and see so the company if you live in chattanooga tennessee you may be in for a treat epb fiber optics is bringing 10 gigabits internet speed to the southern city for 299 a month with free installation no contracts no cancellation fees dude i would pay 300 bucks a month for 10 gigabit internet uh, i would no longer need a hosting provider i would no longer need to have servers out on the web i could do everything from my basement if i had 10 gigabit speed um that's that's pretty amazing it it you know it might be enough to uh make my commute an extra two hours a day it's already two hours just to go 20 miles i could add two hours more to go uh up to chattanooga i mean you've already moved to georgia you might as well move to tennessee <laughs> you know once you make that first move that's you've true broken I the just, ties of home maybe i could get a job working for epb internet uh and suck in that 10 10 gigabits i can't even imagine well, at that point, you are literally waiting on websites instead of web websites waiting on you. Like your your upstream is faster than anybody else, right? Your your CDNs, right, would would probably be able to meet ten gigabits, maybe. But would the throughput to the rest of the world? You're you're faster than a lot of 
small town ISPs at 10 gigabits. Yep. Wonder what Dude, the that- upstream on that is. What 500 megabits up? What <laughs> 128k? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 10 gigs down, 128k up. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. You know, I hope this is a case of the dominoes falling. Uh, uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, Google announced uh, gigabit internet, and they're they're doing it. They're rolling it out. Uh, Austin, AT and T said, "Yeah, we'll 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 meet that." And so they're offering a, a gigabit internet in Austin. So the idea, I think, I, what I hope is happening is that once Google, like they so often do, they push the envelope. Uh, we're seeing that other companies are having to respond to that. And so uh, this is not only responding, but one-upping it, 10 gigabits internet. Um, and, and my hope is that that's just the, going to be the way things are, that over time uh, we'll just get to the point where uh, internet bandwidth is, is not even a question anymore. You don't even talk about, like right now, um, most people have broadband to some point. It's not even a discussion whether or not you have broadband. It's assumed. So I think at some point it'll be assumed that you have near infinite broadband that i would so love to have that i mean it'll take a i think a decade or maybe two to get there but there's nothing technical to prevent it it's not as we've said so many times before there's not a limitation of bits the bits are there um and everybody can be have infinite access we've just gotta we've gotta get rid of the copper and lay fiber you know, but even copper can do you know way better than we're letting it do. Yeah, you know the problem is it's cost prohibitive to people outside of population centers. Right. You know, once you get a mile outside of the switch or whatever that distance is, the population density drops, and but the cost remains the same. It costs X amount to go one mile, whether that one mile serves a hundred people or that one mile serves one-tenth of the way to one person. Right, so, and that was the problem with uh, with telephones for a long time. In fact, we, right. we had the Federal Telecommu- Telecommunications Infrastructure Fund. It was a tax that everybody with a phone paid to uh, bring access to people who didn't have phones. Um, that's the way we handled give, uh, bringing copper wires to every house in the country. Other countries skipped that problem by going straight to cell data, but they pretty much didn't have phones until they had cellular phones. So the U.S. Right. invested in copper, and that's actually, it was it was a huge leapfrog over the world uh, for about 30 years, and now it's holding us back because we have this huge investment in copper. Um, and the rest of the world is, is leaping over us because they're laying down new stuff. Uh, they, right. they don't have a multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar probably investment in copper, so they don't have that legacy. They can lay down new stuff. And so you go like, you know, South Korea, is fond of saying they have the fastest internet uh, in the world. You know, they're also a country the size of some large uh, American cities. And so the, the whole country is a population center at that point, and it's easier to and more cost-effective to do it. Yeah, because, you know, $1,000, a 1,000 a people paying $1,000 is a dollar each. One person paying $1,000 is $1,000, and that's a chunk of money. Right. So it's a... Uh, I don't know. It's I would, I would love to have, a, you know, I mean, come on. What do I do at home? 
play uh play spider solitaire and uh i look at facebook i don't even really post much anymore so i don't really do much i don't need it but i want it and at this point my habits have become so ingrained i don't know if i i don't know maybe i have 10 gigs now and i just don't know right because you know the, the truth is that most people have in, uh, infinite internet for most people right. what they have is all they need um yep. and uh, upstream speeds are terrible on every isp but most people don't need upstream they just need enough to send a call to the server to to send stuff down uh, so only gamers care about upstream and only people who want to run servers or you know in my case stream media out of their houses so i think you're right in that the you know cut a slice uh, out of the population of america and ask them what their internet bandwidth is and they don't know because it's enough and and most people, you know, four megabits is fine. Uh, Ten megabits is better. Um, so they just go to the cable, whoever's in their town, cable or DSL, and say, "Give me the fastest you've got," and and it goes. And all as long as it's enough to to stream uh, Netflix at 1080p, they're good. Precisely. Yeah, they know. I, you know, and I mean, honestly, that's as as if I could do. You know, I don't know because I probably have access to the bandwidth to do Netflix now, but I don't want to do it. So I just, I, I need something to gripe about. And if I get unlimited bandwidth, what am I going to have to gripe about, Mark? You know, <laughs> there's just some problems I'm not ready to let go of. Yeah. And, and the, it'll be, it's only guys like us who are going to, uh, the, the, you know, one percenters isn't the right phrase but the the fringers the the people who are on that side are going to push that forward but we need people like that we need people to push the envelope forward because right. everybody benefits from it yes definitely i so, wholeheartedly concur we are pushing the boundaries on your behalf and my windows 10 device just said hey we've scheduled a restart at eight thirteen p.m are you okay with that no i'm not okay with that i'm doing something here people um, I'm really thinking I'm going to roll back this whole window. Oh, so I did, you know, we had this discussion, I think it was last week, about can you stop uh, or uh, uh, updates. Well, it turns out if you take the free update, you can't. If you pay for Windows, you can. So you can you can choose your updates. That's sort of the deal with the devil you make if you take the free update, uh, with, uh, is that you get all other updates for free on their schedule. Uh, but fortunately, right. it just, just did pop up and say, Hey, we we can reschedule this if you'd like. I wonder if I can reschedule it for uh, Saturdays as far out as I can push it. I can't just reschedule it forever. But, okay. Anyway, just uh, another thing. And so last bit of listener feedback. Another Benjamin, not the same Benjamin, uh, says uh, he's got a name suggestion. Hey, guys, um, I'm at show 208 now. Uh, I don't know whether you've already got a fix for the show title problem, but to me it seems obvious that this show will become the Mark Cockrell Show at some point when you keep it up. Uh, since you're not seeming to be at that point yet and you want to stick to EDL, here's there's just one logical name for the show. It's EDL the show that earlier dealt with Linux. The Mark Cockrell Show, featuring your host, Mark Cockrell. Yeah, I'm, uh, if I were a famous person, I could do that, right? Joe Rogan, right. Adam Carolla, uh, but they were famous before podcasting. I don't think you can ever get famous by podcasting enough to have a show named after you. I, we're not there yet. Um but yeah, I was, I was just talking to somebody about that recently. You know, Joe Rogan, Adam Carolla, uh, these guys, uh, just by being who they are, had a podcast with millions of listeners. If uh, um, 
Howard Stern decided to do a podcast, the first episode would have millions of downloads. Um, right. You know, Lee Laporte, he became quasi-famous doing something else, and he's now quasi-famous as a podcaster. Uh, but I, I've yet to see, see somebody who started as a podcaster become famous doing podcasts. The medium just isn't there yet. Uh, but earlier dealt with Linux, that's pretty good. Yeah. I, um, I, I was asking somebody at work, I was like, hey, man, do you podcast? He's like, yes, I listened to one about network security. But I was like, so the answer would have been no. Thank you. <laughs> but because <laughs> uh, he didn't understand the concept that podcasting is internet radio. He was like, I listened to a security presentation and he called it a podcast. Right. So, yes, I podcast. And there was one, right? One, yes. one episode. It yep. wasn't. There a- was. All you need is one. Right. So. Uh, Rick Crouch in the chat room says, Element OP does life is, is a suggestion for EDL. Good stuff, except you got to run Element OP together, but hey, that works. Um, so I, I should have led with this earlier. It would have been smarter, but I didn't. Um, our friend Mike, the former butcher, uh, he's written into the show a few times before and said that uh, in no small part, uh, this show has, uh, we haven't taught him the skills that he's needed, but we've showed him that it's possible. We've inspired him to move beyond being a butcher. But one of the things that has uh, taught him the skills, some of the skills he's needed, is our friends over at the Linux Academy. Um, and he's one of the success stories that uh, that I like. It's not that he's, um, what, what I like about his story is he didn't go after a Linux job right away just because he didn't go to linux academy get some certification go straight there but he used the skills available at linux academy to boost his overall technical knowledge and then he went and got an entry-level position um or you know mid-level i'm not sure what it is in the tech field and i think a lot of times people when they they want to jump from one uh career to another or they want to start you know jump from high school to a career they want to jump straight into that mid-level or straight into that upper level um and that's I'm not going to say that's not how the world works, but it's pretty unusual uh, for people to do that. I've certainly ever done that. Uh, Seth, I mean, you, you started at the bottom and worked your way up, right? Uh, I, I'm still at the bottom. At, yeah. yeah, I've started at the bottom and repeatedly gone to the bottom, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. But yeah, no, I mean, it is, if you have that in-demand skill and, you know, some people, they're they're just smart and they chose computers and, and that's what. So, you know. But most of the time, the overnight success you hear about is 20 years in the making. So, wow, that person's an overnight success. But you talk to them, I've been doing this for 15 years. Somehow, yesterday, everybody knew I did it. Um, But for the first 14 years, I was was in the poorhouse. But it's an overnight success. So, yeah. Um, I think if I keep podcasting long enough, I'll become an overnight success. Success. Right. But um, a good way to expand your tool belt in general uh, is our friends over at the LinuxAcademy.com. Uh, they take you the, the the YouTube route, right? But so much more than just YouTube. Uh, I was doing some auto repairs today uh, on my on my truck, and I went to YouTube to learn how to do it because there's so much stuff out there on YouTube. The problem was all the videos that I was watching were other guys like me who were hacking around and trying to find the best way to do it and just... Um, uh, filming their success or failures. And you can certainly learn from other people's failures and successes, but it would be so much better if I had had a step-by-step uh, a tutorial that said, do this and then do this with a with a, a, a 
a paper guide so that I could follow because it's it's hard sometimes to watch the video while you're doing the thing. You want to stop it. You want to go back, and you, it's easy to get lost in where you are. Linuxacademy.com solves that problem, not with auto repair, but with technology, with Linux, with uh, Amazon Web Hosting, with uh, Python, uh, with, uh, you know, so many other things. They've gone way beyond just Linux. But they start with the video. That's where they start. It's a YouTube style, a, a video that you can watch on your mobile device or on uh, pretty much anything that you own, uh, anything with a relatively recent browser, and you're going to be able to view it. But they come with the companion guides, the uh, the um, uh, PDF study guides that you can download, you can watch. They're time-coded where you go. And then they give you you know, in my analogy, a, a toy car that you can take apart and it's okay if you break it in the form of their uh, lab structure. It's an amazing virtual lab structure. You can uh, have up to eight dis- uh, eight different distributions. You can pick one of those and you can have up to four running at any one time and they can interact with each other. One can be a client, one can be a server. They can both be servers. Um, they can talk with each other all in this safe environment where if you, you know, if you turn the wrong screw or strip the head off of something, you haven't ruined your truck or you haven't blown up your work server where you were doing something in the spare room hoping to learn from it so it's a safe environment with high quality instruction it's not just guys poking around saying well i'm pretty sure this works i don't know how many times i've watched a video where a guy's doing a demonstration and i hear him go oh wait hold on uh let me go back click click here maybe you right click oh yeah there it is it's a right click there's none of that with linux academy because they're high quality professionals in the field doing the videos um so i've told you about the videos i've told you about the pdf i've told you about the lab uh um, uh environment but but unfortunately i don't have time to tell you about everything else those are three of the biggies but there's so much more there's a whole user community there's uh there's the the ways you can build your own lesson plans there's ways that they can build a lesson plan for tools that they have to keep you on track certification courses where you can you can go straight from the linux academy to the CompTIA certification and um, it's just it's so much more than i can talk about in a two-minute ad or a seven-minute ad or a 24-minute ad just take my word for it i wouldn't be hawking them every week uh if i didn't believe in them and i really do believe in them so check them out uh, linuxacademy.com use the referral code everyday linux and you'll get a discount off their already stupid cheap prices their stupid cheap prices are 29 dollars a month all of the stuff that i just talked about for less than 30 bucks a month you're just not going to find that anywhere on the internet there are other places that charge you less for videos but you get less than videos or you just get videos rather um so uh, if you want to buy like anything else the more you buy the less you pay if you buy three months a quarter uh that's 69 dollars. or if you buy annually it's 229 dollars, which is less than 20 dollars uh uh a month because 20 dollars a month would be 240 dollars. see how i did that uh so check them out but again if you use the uh the code everyday linux you get a discount off of those prices linuxacademy.com let them know that we sent you Go to your university and say, hey, I want to take your online courses and I will pay you $29 a month per course and see see if they would be good with that. Because really, you're getting institutional level online classes. I mean, you know, yes, you're not sitting in a classroom, but you're getting the equivalent of online classes. You have the ability to contact the instructors and have, you know, whether, you know, emails back and forth or whatever for $29 a month. You just, you can't beat the price, but it's not just about price. It's high quality too. Right. All right. So let's move on now to a little bit of tech news, uh, where Yahoo says goodbye to passwords. What might as, might as well. Everybody's hacking them anyway. Right. Yeah. No, they have come out 
and I don't, I love the concept of, yay, you know, you need to get rid of passwords, but they're coming out with a, uh, and of course this is tech news world. So there's a thousand different ads that pop up when you launch the webpage, but they are, this is the Yahoo mail app on smartphones. And so when you try to sign in, it's basically going to send uh, a push notification to your phone that you click okay on. So I don't like it because if you lose your phone, then somebody has your email and well of course i mean if you have a yahoo mail client your password signed into it so it's already there anyway but you know i think they're just getting away getting rid of it on the mobile devices at least that's all it is now so if you go to a browser you would still need a password um but yeah so you know they're thinking about security and they're looking at ways to differentiate themselves and make themselves more secure. That's a good thing for everybody concerned because the last thing we need is more zombie email addresses shooting out spam. So it, it's cool. Um, I don't have the Yahoo mail app anymore, so does it's not really going to affect me at this point. But yes, yeah, so Yahoo is in the process of at least saying goodbye to passwords. And I think everybody understands that the way we do security now, those days are numbered. Passwords are going to go away. Um, Steve Gibson uh, is, you know, uh, much publicized for like three or four years now, working on his replacement called Squirrel. Um, you know, Google has been doing their uh, their best to do it. Now on, on Marshmallow, I have the newest version of, of uh, uh, Android on my phone, and it has a, a vault built in. So that when I go to a website uh, and I, and I it can auth authorize my phone by the device ID, it just logs me straight in. Now that's on the phone, right? Uh, right. The, so these are um, I have to have already gotten into my phone, right? So I've had to use my secure password or a swipe pattern or whatever to get in there. So these are all things that um, simplify the end user experience at the risk of lessening security. Uh, the 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 strong multi-character very long random hash type password is still the most secure way to do it. The problem is uh, where do those passwords live? Because if they're that strong, the odds that they can live in your brain go way down. Um, and so then they've got to be stored somewhere. They're going to sto be stored on your device, or they're going to be stored on the end user server on the on the on that end. That's not a good idea, as we've seen from you know Ashley Madison and and everybody else. If they keep your passwords, uh, it becomes a treasure trove for dedicated people um, who are trying to attack it. And it's not that their security is weak necessarily. It's just that um, uh, the hackers only have to succeed once, and the defenders have to succeed a thousand times a second. So right. it's a it's a never winning game. The the servers never win. They only can delay. They never win. So this this you know uh, I Apple's uh, system with the fingerprints you know that's that's pretty good. Android is is kind of putting something together haphazardly about it. Haphazardly, they're not they're half heartedly. That's the word I was looking for. They're half heartedly putting uh, fingerprint support into things, but their apps don't really use it in a meaningful way. But then the fingerprint readers aren't as secure as we would like them to be because in order to make them uh, easy and fast so that you could just touch the fingerprint reader in, you have to take shortcuts. So security right now is broken and we all know it, but nobody has a better way yet than a password. Yeah. And so, you know, it's one of those, you, you hit the nail square on the head. 
the the weakest unfortunately the weakest link in security is the most complex computer still built the human brain and our implementation of life 3.0 or whatever version we're on now you know some good password haystacking would take care of this issue um but yeah you've got to walk around knowing how to get into your website and you have to it has to be convenient for you because if it's not convenient for you then why bother having it? But at the same time, if it's not secure, then, you know, why bother having it? So yeah, it's that trade-off and by nature, security makes things more complicated. That just means it's doing its job. I hope that within my lifetime, we will, we will look back on this, this era and just sort of groan in, in, uh, remembering how terrible it was at the ludicrousy of remembering 36 character gibberish things to be able to get into websites um that the the whole concept of the username and password will be so it'll, it'll be like the the eight track it'll be one of those things that you remember not being as great as you wanted it even at the time and today it, you remember it as being terrible uh, i don't think we're there yet but but let's be honest people have really haven't even been trying uh, except for the last, you know, maybe five, ten years. Let's give it ten years. Uh, for the long time, passwords were good enough. You know, we've we've been doing this for, I don't know, um, probably the concept of a passphrase goes back uh, eons. But in terms of technology, the moment uh, we decided to to secure things, and and I put that in air quotes because uh, there's no such thing as network security. You're either networked or you're secure. Um, the moment we started trying to secure things, the the way we did it was by a passcode of some kind. So that's just been good enough, and we've been living with it. And we all know it's not great, but we live with things now that we all know is not great. You know, we we dig up dead dinosaurs and, and pump them into our gas tanks so that we can drive. We all know it's not great, but it's the best thing that we have right now. And uh, someday we'll look back on that and go, wow. I can't. I can't believe we had to dig up dead dinosaurs to pump in, into a storage tank on our cars. Uh, but you know, we're not there yet. Right. Um, you know, it's two-factor authentication. That's what you need. That would be pretty hard to break because it's got to be something you have and something you know. Because if it's just something you have or if it's just something you know, you've cut your potential security in half. So everybody has their phone, but you still need something to access it. So yeah, and then know. you got to make sure the phone is then secured, right? right? Which is a password right now. Right. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, Apple gets a dose of its own medicine, but in an amount that is pretty trivial to a company that size. Uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison has won a patent infringement lawsuit against Apple. Yes, um, they got two hundred and thirty-four million. Um, they were asking for four hundred, so you know it wasn't like they were seeking to break the bank. But um, the, and the judge ruled yes, they violated. But they didn't do it willingly, uh, which to me, that just is ridiculously <laughs> Oops, stupid. We accidentally. Yeah, yeah, we didn't do it on purpose. Um, you know, uh, so yes, Apple is uh, ponying up 234. You know, I don't know, Tim Daly, you know, his the gold plated is just going to be painted on instead of, you know, layered on an inch thick on his next iPhone. Um, it, it's it's a drop in the bucket for them. It's nothing but. Because, and of course, you know, Apple doesn't really, if if your name isn't Samsung, they don't go after you directly, but a lot of these, uh, a lot of the patent troll organizations and the companies acting like patent trolls um, 
are pretty largely substantially owned by Apple. So they kind of use a third party for deniability and good press, but they are one of the strong arms behind the, and again, because they actually do have, they're not just a patent holding company, but they exercise a patent troll behavior, patent troll esque behavior on more than one occasion through a third party subsidiary or a wholly or partially owned third party subsidiary. Um, I just think it's good they get a little, little bit of their own comeuppance. And uh, the odds are that Apple will spend three to four hundred million dollars fighting this two hundred and thirty-four million dollar um, judgment against them. They'll continue to appeal it because they're more interested in their image than they are the money. Uh, I, I know that was certainly true under Steve Jobs, and I suspect it's also true under uh, you know the current leadership. I mean, but really, you know, I mean, if if you take away Apple's image then they're they're just another company so their image is really the only thing they have um i mean and the fact that they own the whole silo but so they've got to protect that image because if you think of apple in the exact same way you think of hp and dell um and you know lenovo then they wouldn't be the the largest company in the world in terms of market cap all right, and moving on, uh, fitting for this time of year, I remember in the uh, the early uh, 80s, uh, the scare about razor blades and apples when you went out trick-or-treating. Now, if somebody gives you an apple trick-or-treating, you don't eat it anyway, and you probably yell at them and, and give them the bird. But back when I was a kid, apples and oranges were fairly common, and you know, some guy somewhere thought it was funny to put a razor blade in one, and so every time you got home, uh, and for the next you know 30 years thereafter, I still do it today, you go over your kid's candy and just make sure that everything looks okay. Well, now we may have to be checking out USB drives to see if they all look okay, make sure there's not a razor blade or a series of highly charged capacitors in them. Yes, a researcher who goes by the name of Dark Purple has created a USB device that can permanently destroy or at least severely damage your machine. And they did it showing a ThinkPad uh, laptop. And of course, you know, those are pretty old because it was actually an IBM ThinkPad. Um, but it's a, it's a USB... And from the outside, it looks like a regular thumb drive, um, but inside it has a lot of capacitors and it delivers a negative 220 volt electric surge into the USB port. And the thing that just makes it truly diabolical is those capacitors charge when you plug it in to the computer because uh, they, you know, it takes a few seconds to charge and then they deliver their payload and would shut out your motherboard and, you know, things attached to your motherboard, like your hard drive, possibly your memory or other things, those wouldn't necessarily be fried, but your device would become inoperable. And if you have a tablet or something like that, that everything is hard, soldered on and all that then your whole device is really in effect in effect unusable and it's not like it's not like that you know people have found these drives out in the wild this was simply a security researcher going what happens if i make a usb drive a booby trap and there's a uh, there's a youtube video showing it um killing a laptop so an interesting article, and I just wanted to share it. Again, I'm not saying that, you know, don't go out and buy a USB drive if you need it, but it was just interesting. So I wanted to pass it along. 
You know, I can remember in the uh, the 90s getting all kinds of emails from people saying that there's a new virus that'll instantly destroy your computer. Well, this isn't a virus, but it's darn close to all those things that you were actually threatened about uh, in e- chain email letters 20 years ago. Um, it's a custom-made piece of hardware that, you know, would definitely have to be a, a spearfish kind of attack, but, uh, you know, could use your PC's own power to destroy your PC. Yeah, well, and you know, just think about that. If you were wanting to do something, if you had a trade show or, you know, you could put together a marketing thing and you can have logos imprinted on USB drives, super cheap. Uh, lots of companies do it. And, you know, you send it out to everybody at a company. Well, what happens if they, if, if they plug it in to like 40 or 50 computers, then boom, that company just took a major hit in productivity and repair. And, you know, all because it traces back to some PO box that was paid for in cash. So (laughs) (laughs) it's, uh, you know, to me, this would be, this would be a great, if I were a, uh, if I were a fiction writer, this would be a great way to attack a company, uh, a company's infrastructure. Right. And it's, it's not going to do, you know, it's not going to bring the company to the knees, but it could certainly cost a chunk of money. Right. And, you know, and technology is so miniaturized now, you could have it where those capacitors take two, three, four hours to charge just with a slow trickle charge or logic that says after the, you know, only happened on the fifth time it's been inserted or something like that. So more, uh, more just something to look at and go, this is kind of cool, but deviously cool, but, uh, interesting. So I wanted to share it with our, uh, faithful followers. So speaking of both cool and devious, Windows 10, uh, as I just complained about, wants you to upgrade real bad. Well, it turns out that if you got Windows 7 or 8 laying around, you may f- wake up and find yourself with Windows 10. Yes, because um, Microsoft started, uh, and what happened was it's an optional update, and they said they quote-unquote made a mistake and accidentally made it recommended. And so people would wake up and look at their computers and go, you know, click here to continue your Windows 10 upgrade practice or whatever. So uh, now they said, oops, we're sorry. We'll turn it off. Our bad. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, companies do this all the time. Make do stupid things. Forget the fact checked and quality check their updates and software. Um, it's just like every antivirus software at one point has had a false positive that deleted a system file and made your computer unusable. Uh, McAfee's done it. Semantic's done it. AVG's done it. Um, so here Windows is just pushing, Microsoft is pushing Windows 10 by accident um, to uh, to more people. Right, and it's uh, it's it's they say it's fixed. Uh, yeah, and the the thing here is that Windows uh, has three, four, three levels of updates. There's critical, important, and optional. And this fix accident, this fix accidentally. I'm using air quotes very heavily here. Um, made the optional updates installed by default. So the important updates are installed by default already. The critical updates are installed by default already. This made optional updates, and Windows 10 is an optional update. Um, so it took user interaction. It it you know it started the process, but you had to click it. So nobody accidentally got upgraded. Uh, but you know, I believe I'm more inclined to believe this is a case of Microsoft being stupid than Microsoft being evil. This was just somebody flipped a bit and released a package without testing it. 
Uh, that scares me more, actually, that they're releasing stuff without testing it. Oh, I I totally agree. I don't think that they were being evil. I just think that this is a great way to make fun of them because they did something stupid. Um, not like I've never done anything stupid myself, but I agree with you. Who didn't? Who doesn't check to say, okay, is everything right? Because we owe it to our customers not to screw something like this up. And we owe it to the internet at large to make sure our updates do what they say they do and don't break something else. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I totally agree. Um, and then on the same vein, Apple OS X 10 X X 10, um, it may become is now it's not may it is becoming uh, a target of malware because there's more people out there. We've talked about this before. Not only is the market share growing, but people who own Macs tend to be more uh, affluent people. So they're they're more uh, a rich target bed for hackers. Well, and just has more people, a larger percentage of people use them. So it's not just people who are savvy using them, but now you're getting regular people using Macs, uh, which is just a scary thing to think of. But instances of malware on Mac from 2010 to 2014 totaled 180. Well, so far in 2015, it's already reached 948 and they said, um, I'm looking for the number. They found something like 1400 unique OS 10 X malware samples. This is a 10 week survey of bit nine and carbon black just from their customers. So this isn't even the, uh, the population, uh, of the internet users at large bit nine and carbon black are not something that the layperson is going to be using. So it could actually be much worse. But I would think whenever through the first uh, 10 months of a year and you've equaled five times what the previous five years had, I think that will qualify as an explosion. So definitely. I just got to say that's the dumbest name of a company ever, Bit9 plus Carbon Black. But uh, hey, whatever. I own a company called Element Opie. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, this isn't surprising. It gets easier to do. There's wider adoption. Um, you know, welcome to the, the real world, uh, Apple users. You, your smugness has now been dropped down at least a little bit, you know, but their, uh, their deniability, their denial hasn't. So this is just more of a, I don't know. I don't know how they'll spin this, but it'll be fun I, to listen. I'm listening to slash reading a book right now by Guy Kawasaki. Um, and you may not know who that is, but he's a, a software uh, entrepreneur who's been around for a while. He was a software evangelist for Apple. That was his job, was to go out and app- evangelize Apple uh, during the Mac days, the original Mac computer. Um, and the, the book is... Uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, computers in well it's not specifically about computers it's actually about uh, the startups called the art of the start uh, startups I'm not a startup but you know I'm interested in learning different stuff and it was one of the audible uh, daily deals so I took it but what's interesting is he's so he's such a Mac fanatic even all these years later uh, he's left uh, Apple he no longer works there but that evangelist vein is still in him 
And there's so many times throughout the book where he takes pot shots, pot shots at windows. One of them was, uh, you know, if you um, if you have an hour for your presentation, plan a 20 minute presentation because something is going to come up and you know, something may go wrong. And he said, if you go in there where, uh, with a Windows laptop, it may take you the whole hour to connect to the projector, um, which is you know quirky and funny, but also incredibly wrong and stupid. But it just shows to me that that's the Mac. Uh, user, of course, he's the he's the proto, the the ultimate, the evangelist Mac user. But they really believe that their product is so much better than everybody else. Um, and now things like this are proving, nope, it's just a computer running software. Darn it! Yep. All right, let's take a break, as Leo Laporte likes to say. Let's stop the flow of our our news links and talk a little bit about our friends over at DigitalOcean.com. They came to me a little while back and said, hey, we'd like to advertise on your show. I said, i got to be honest with you, I've never heard of you. Um, It turns out I'm the only one. Everybody asked about them had heard of them. Uh, They are a virtual hosting solution, so they give you a a virtual machine in the cloud to do with as you please. So if you're doing shared hosting right now, you've got a a WordPress blog hosted on you know, HostGator, um, and and that's not good enough for you anymore. You need access to an actual server. DigitalOcean are the guys that can help you out. They they give you a machine running uh, on KVM, which is near um, hardware performance. Uh, then the hardware is pretty darn awesome. Hex core processors, dedicated ECC RAM, uh, RAID SSD storage. Yes, I said SSD. Everything on their machine is SSD, um, which means it's lightning fast. You can spin up a, a new droplet, what they call one of their machines, in less than a minute. And I'm not kidding about that. I've tested it. It's true. You can go from nothing to a fully functional uh, Ubuntu machine with Drupal installed and ready to log in in like 53 seconds. And then everything's connected to the internet with their uh, gigabit uh, interface. Uh, you get private networking available if you want it. There's a simple API. If you're not into servers but you need a server for your app, they've got an API that your app can can uh, go straight with it. Everything you'd need, uh, high-quality stuff, uh, lightning fast. In fact, I, I did my research. I tried. I looked around. I couldn't find anybody saying anything bad about them other than you know they, they didn't like their service. Well, not liking it is not necessarily saying something about it, bad about it. But not only they're good, but they're totally totally affordable. Um, you can get started for as low as $5 a month. That gives you uh, a half a gig of RAM on a one core processor and 20 gigs of storage. Not a machine that's going to tear down the world, but certainly enough to poke at and certainly enough to run you know, a WordPress blog. Uh, but you can move on up there you know, all the way up to their $80 a month plan, which is a quad core processor at eight gigs of RAM and uh, five terabytes of transfer a month, but they, everything in between. But don't take my word for it. Um, if you don't, if you want to check them out, the, you, if you go to digitalocean.com slash elementopi or use elementopi in the, uh, I'm sorry, element, uh, Everyday Linux, not elementopi, or use uh, Everyday Linux in the referral box, they'll give you a $10 credit. So if you buy that $5 a month server uh, with the $10 credit, my math says that's two months free. Uh, if you do the $10 a month thing with a $10 credit, that's uh, a month free. So there's no risk there. there. You don't have anything to lose. Check them out, um, digitalocean.com. I, I'm running my stuff on them. I'm, I'm in the process of moving things over. Uh, I believe in them enough to, to, to put, again, put my money where uh, uh, my mouth is. And, and I, you know, I've paid for the, a server, and I'm running. And no, they don't give me a particular discount. I got the same uh, $10 credit that you guys get, and I believed in it, and I tried it. So check them out. If you need a server, digitalocean.com is where to go. And now we continue on with our news with uh, 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 another thing that isn't quite surprising, but it may sounds like FUD to me. Rooting your phone may help create 
Android malware. As a guy who roots his phone, um, I'm guilty. Okay, well, let me ask you this, Mark. How do you root your phone? Uh, well, the uh, most recent one, uh, what I have done in the past, actually, it's different for everything. But essentially, I download something from a trusted app that patches the kernel and roots the phone from a trusted source, rather. Okay, and then you are then part of the problem because the thing is, what is happening here isn't illegal or immoral or outside the terms of service. But what is happening is um, development outfits, you know, root genius, I root, whatever you want to call it. They what they do is they take and package exploits to breach the kernel and allow you to root it. Well, the thing is that is out there and it's a legitimate app for legitimate uses, but a bad guy can take that and reverse engineer it and then package those exploits in another app to gain root access. And the thing is they, they tried, um, how many did they try? 167 different um, exploits and bundled them one at a time into self-developed apps. And they tested four AV products. One of the four found 13 of the 167 exploits and only the ones that were in the naked unpacked form. So all the ones that were packaged up, they totally bypassed the security that was out there. So by rooting your phone that way, Again, you haven't done anything, but by them releasing the app that basically breaks the kernel to allow breaks into the kernel to allow you to root it, those can be reverse engineered and used for malicious means. So let me tell you, um, I, I I am aware that there are phones that can be rooted through an app. I have never had one of those phones. Every phone that I've ever had to root had to take place with a USB cable connected to a computer where you're flashing an image of either a ROM or a kernel uh, onto the uh, the device. It's not something I could download and run on the app. Uh, now, I know those things have existed, but I don't think they've existed since uh, KitKat. I'm pretty sure KitKat put put the kibosh on that. But if it wasn't KitKat, it was definitely um, Lollipop. So that apps, as far as I know, can no longer breach the kernel and root the device. You now have to go outside the OS itself. You have to move into the uh, the uh, recovery mode, the bootloader, and use something called ADB and use that to... It, essentially, you're formatting, you're reformatting the hard drive of the device. It's not a hard drive, but to use that example, you're reformatting the hard drive of the device, wiping away the original OS and putting on a, a patched OS on it. So I think that I, while I don't doubt that their stuff is accurate, I think it's old. Hmm. Yeah, it, it doesn't say um, the paper was presented at I've never heard of the ACM conference on computer and communication security, but it was presented at the 2015 version. So um, you could. I, I could follow the link and research it, but I really wouldn't even know what I was looking at. So um, I don't know whether it's previous, but I don't think that they would be presenting that paper if it was something that, oh, by the way, the last two versions of Android make this mute. Well, no, I think so, they would because there are still millions, maybe billions of devices that don't have the last two versions of Android. Um, you know, there are a lot of phones out there that still don't have Lollipop, let alone Marshmallow. Right. So it's still a real problem. Uh, there are a lot of things out there running KitKat and below, uh, but I just don't think it's um, I don't think it's as simple as a guy writing an abstract for general consumption makes it out. 
That's just my take on it. Uh, I will say that Android is giving you fewer and fewer reasons to need to root. So my my two reasons for always wanting to root were so I could tether illegally. Well, not illegally, but against my uh, user agreement. So I'll admit that. Uh, I don't do it often, but there are times when I'm out somewhere and I must tether somewhere uh, for, you know, for whatever reason. So I, I keep that as an option. Well, there are now apps that do that without root. There are lots of them. My wife's phone is not rooted, but she can tether and it works just fine. Um, and the other one is backup. My favorite backup tool um, uh titanium backup uh makes you know because i'm a, a player around her with phones i i f- sometimes just this weekend i find myself in a position where the only way to unbrick my phone to was to wipe it and start over and that's pretty darn frustrating if you've got to reinstall all your apps and you lose all your data so i've had you know i have uh, scripts that run uh, on a schedule that back up my stuff and upload it to dropbox well with with marshmallow uh, android 6.0 they now do that for you and store that in your Google Drive account, and it doesn't count against your um, your cap. And so when I redid it this time, of the 137, somewhere around that apps on my phone, 96 of them updated themselves without me having to do anything. So those more and more Android is rec- or Google, uh, the company uh, behind Android is recognizing that uh, that people need these uh, or they need, but they certainly may not need, but they want these tools and rooting is the way to go, go about it. So they're taking away your reasons to root. And I think that once everything moves over to the new Marshmallow APIs and uh, is starting to use that new technology, I think I won't need to root anymore. I think I have probably rooted my last phone. Well, when you put it like that, it just sounds like it's a like it's a death knell in society. If you can't root your own phone, come well, on, what's the world coming it's not that to? I can't. I just don't need to anymore. And 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 Android, uh, Google, their phones, their Nexus phones, have always been really root friendly. But starting with a lollipop, they're not anymore. In fact, you once your phone is rooted, you can no longer take over the air updates. You, I now have to go uh, grab them off their website, install them manually through that same process I was talking about. It breaks things now when you root. It doesn't have to. They have chosen to break things if you're rooted because they recognize that it gives the average user more power than an average user could have. Just like, you know, we tell people all the time, don't run as as root uh, in your Linux devices, don't run as administrator on your Windows devices, because for most people, you don't need to. If you're a developer, I'm not a developer, but I'm in the developer playground. I'm playing with stuff. I'm a, certainly an advanced phone user. So I, I exu- assume those risks and, and take on the extra hassle of updating my phone. But Android is, uh, uh, Google is is recognizing that the average person is doing this to get one or two features. And if they can give you that one or two features, you won't be doing it anymore. No, I, I see that. And, you know, I I have uh, an Android phone and I have really no desire to root it. Um, I just, I get on the, I get on the website because I just don't like most apps. Most apps to me don't give you the functionality of their, web page counterparts so i just wish the screen were a little bit bigger when i go to the mobile websites but again i'm weird i'm unusual the fact that i am that way proves the need for the other side of the coin all right and this next one i don't even know what this headline means seth you're gonna have to fill me in source code can get you convicted of a crime okay this this was a very interesting story I came across on Ars Technica. It's actually dated yesterday. Um, and of course their tagline is secret source code pronounces you guilty as charged. And 
there's a company that does DNA testing and they have proprietary software that runs and it's able to say that, hey, we looked at this DNA and this DNA and we can say, you know, with, you know, with the likelihood of one in five trillion chances of being wrong that this DNA matches this DNA. And so you are convicted based on that, but your defense lawyer says, uh, we would like to review the source code to make sure that that program looked at the DNA uh, sequences and matched them up. And there weren't any type of errors because whenever you're dealing something like that, if you have one error that's off by a factor of 10, that's no big deal unless it's something that runs several times, but you put a factor of 10 in here and a factor of 10 in there, it makes something that is, you know, one to the 20 millionth chances of being wrong, being a one in two chance of being wrong. And then it is say, well, if it's that far, you know, um, or vice versa. So something that I don't think it's that guy could say it's that guy because of a software error, but yet because this is a proprietary program and they're saying if we gave access to our source code, we would lose our competitive edge in the marketplace and therefore just trust us. Our source code is right. The DNA match was true. They're guilty. So uh, does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I think so. I'm reading the, there was an update to the article since it was put out. Right. Uh, and there's a quote there that says, source code is not used to assess forensic software's reliability when viewing a DNA interpretation method. I looked at the, I look at the math and examine the empirical results on real data. If the source code is available, I may test the software, but do not read the source code. Computer accuracy is relevant, but software text is not. Um, so I, I, that's sort of a softening, maybe, of what they're talking about. Um, well, but again, you know, okay, I don't, the fact is, you don't know what the code does because you can't see the code. How do you know that the formula you coded was coded right? You know, something that is 10 minus 8 is 2, but 10 times 8 is 80. That's a difference of 78, but I can't check your math because your program is proprietary. Right. So, you know, to me, a valid defense would be, or, you know, you are allowed, at least in America, you used to be allowed to see your accuser in a court and present your side of the story. But if your accuser is a proprietary piece of code that no one on your team is allowed to vet to make sure it was done right, then have you received due process? Yeah, so you you have the ability to call your own expert witness, right? So then you could do that, have another company run the results and get a different thing, but then it becomes like so many things in a court of law case of he said he said. So right, but you can't cross examine their the software. Right. You can't cross examine the software to see how come your expert, how come the plaintiff expert says he's guilty and the defense expert says he's innocent. Well, the defense expert was paid to say he's innocent. That's what the jury's going to think. Right. So versus a neutral person go, well, the plaintiffs, the def the state software, I found 25 errors in the five lines of code they gave me to review. So all of a sudden. If, if there's mistakes in something that doesn't relate to mathematical formulas, then that would call into question if they can't get that right, maybe they didn't get the formulas right. Yeah. And, and again, and, it was, it's an interesting article. 
DNA has always been used to say that the likelihood that this DNA matches this person. So we found some DNA on the scene, and there's a, a 1 in 12 billion uh, possibility that this is the same person. Well, since there are only 7 billion people on the planet, uh, and you have to, you know, th- then you're pretty sure that's the guy, right? Um, but it, what if the formula was instead of 1 in... 7 billion suppose that there was a decimal wrong and it was one right. in 70 right yeah if it's one in 70 or seven thousand, then you're like well they could be you know round up any seven thousand people on the planet and it could be that guy instead so it, it's all about the numbers that was the point i was going for it's the whole point of dna based evidence is all about the numbers we say the probability that person a equals person b is x and if you can't trust the probability you can't trust the system um, that this is interesting to me in that, that you know, um, this could call the whole process of DNA uh, evidence. It could throw it out. Well, you know, again, and who knows? Maybe I'm not saying that this company's. I'm not saying there's any mistakes in the software, and I'm not saying that they're just trying to make a buck by throwing crap out there. I'm saying. And of course, me vetting their software would be meaningless because exactly. I'm not an expert in programming, mathematics, or DNA. But having a an expert in the field not having the ability to vet their software for mistakes, you know, I mean, we're talking about somebody's life here, guilt or innocence. And I don't understand how the fact that, uh, but th- this is our livelihood. You know, you can't question my credentials. I need my credentials to be expert witnesses. You know, imagine that if I walk in, sir, what is your credentials to testify in this computer case? Oh, I'm an expert. Well, what are they? I can't tell you because then people might get the same credentials and I would no longer be able to make money for being an expert. You would get thrown out of the court for saying that. But if I have a program and say, I can't tell you how the program was written because then I would lose money. All of a sudden I've added a medium in there and now I can charge whatever I want and not let anybody see it. I I think, I think this is crap. Yeah. I think we're going to have to find a way to, independently audit software uh, before it's admissible in court, something like that. Totally. And again, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, I don't know whether the guy is guilty or innocent. I only know that true justice isn't being done if the code that was used to convict can't be vetted. Right. It's no difference than different than a fingerprint scanner that is only right, you know, 10% of the time. And you're you're you we got a fingerprint match uh, between uh, this guy and yeah roughly eighty percent of the planet, but we're pretty sure it was him. Um, you know, one of the reasons we use fingerprints is, as far as we can tell, they're entirely unique, uh, and DNA is supposed to be entirely except with twins, right? Even twins can have the same fingerprints, right. so uh, but they don't have the same uh, exact DNA. So they're supposed you're supposed to be able. To, but anyway, um, math is hard, even in in legal cases. Yeah. Anyway, it was it was a very interesting story. I was like, you know, that I mean, this it's it's just very neat. Yeah, so, it's the the perfect kind of thing to talk about on a Linux show that's not about Linux. Right. Um, well, you know, I'm sure it runs on Linux computers. So <laughs> continuing the theme of this show which is, you know, it's our pre-Halloween show. We're going to scare the pants off of you. Um 
this is an int- I, I, props to these guys actually. So um, most of the major, all of the major browsers are built on open source code. So if you're having trouble hacking those browsers, just build your own using the same code. Yeah, and replace it. And so there apparently Chrome is uh, so good at sandboxing and preventing things that malware has said we're not going to try to hijack Chrome. We're going to delete Chrome and throw in a version of Chromium that will, you know, key log track and all the other kind of stuff. So um, a an InfoSec celebrity pointed out a new piece of adware called the eFast browser, and it does the same kind of crap that everything's done. Um, but it um, not so much. It's about the pop ups and pop unders. It basically deletes Chrome and presents a something that looks like Chrome if you you know, that would probably fool a lot of people because it's got the little Google-esque symbol and other things like that. But it just replaces the uh, browser and it substitutes one of their own making. So now when you connect to www.bankofamerica.com securely and you put in your username and password, you are legitimately doing that. But because they wrote this browser, they copied your username and password. And so now... You did everything right, but you did it on the wrong browser, and now your uh, your financials have been hijacked. <laughs> it's it's diabolical, and and you know my hats off to you, and I hate you all at the same time. Yes. So by you know the regular methods, infecting a download or getting you to go somewhere else, you download this thing. That when you run it, um, you know, you probably had to click the yes, I agree button because it came with something that you did want, you know, uh, just like a, a toolbar, a browser toolbar. Now, what this is doing is replacing your browser so that now when you click on a, a web link uh, or you click on your shortcut that used to go to Chrome, now it goes to this thing that looks like Chrome and acts like Chrome. And you think you're you're doing everything and you're actually, yeah, you're actually getting all your stuff like you did before. Except that now they own you, and they can control whatever and wherever you want to go. They can redirect you. They can they own the the browser at that point. It's brilliant, um, but it's scary all at the same time. Definitely. So, uh, and again, you know, the sky isn't falling. Quit trying to download the whatever coupon clipper uh, oh. from. You know, or because that's how it's coming in. And it's like, do you want to install a coupon clipper? And then in half point font, by clicking install, you agree to uninstall Chrome and replace it with this thing that looks exactly like Chrome, but it's going to steal your life. Uh, And you go, yes, I want the coupons. Uh, So. So I uh, uh, recently got a legitimate email from a real bank. It was a small mom and pop bank that I was considering doing business with. Um, it was, it was ridiculous. Actually, I wanted to create an online account and the only way they could create an online account for me is if I went into the bank (laughs) and I actually sent an email and said, are you kidding me? So in order to set up an account so that I don't have to go into the bank, I have to go into the bank. But they sent me an email with a link in it that said something like click here to set your password. And I was like, oh no, not even, am I going to consider that? Um, and it's so stupid of you. You are so backwards to even send me that email that I refuse to consider doing business with you. 
Um, I, it was it was a, a like I said a small bank. I like to support local businesses whenever I can. Their their rates were good. It was high interest rate uh, checking account that, that that didn't cost anything. I was like, oh yeah, this is this is good. This is this checks all the uh, altruism boxes. I'm supporting local economy. Uh, plus, I'm getting a good deal for me. Uh, I don't really like working with Bank of America, my current bank, because they're they're a soulless, inhuman uh, corporation. But at least they don't send me emails that say to reset your password. Click here. Um, and it, it just made me realize that not only are we dealing with this kind of um, ignorance, that's really the only way you can describe it, on users, but also on businesses. They are just as ignorant, and people are still clicking links that they get an email. And, and I tell people all the time, I tell my kids and I tell people at work, don't click on it if you didn't ask for it. You know, Chris, uh, he's fond of saying he doesn't click an email ever. So because I'm a tool when i send him a link i try to make it as convoluted as possible with as many characters as possible in it um sometimes i've actually hashed the url just to mess with him because i know he's going to copy he's going to manually retype that every time i send him a link um but that's just because i'm evil um but i don't go so far as to say never click on links in email but if you didn't ask for it if you didn't go looking for it don't install it don't click it um, if you go to a website and it helpfully says, hey, would you like to download this? No. As a matter of fact, I would not. I didn't go there looking for it. I'm not going to install it. But this was a bank. And the only way I could do business with this bank, a legitimate bank, a legitimate uh, um, uh, federally insured organization, the only way I could do it was to violate one of my own policies. And so I said, bye-bye. I'm not, I'm not doing anything with you anymore. <laughs> yeah, I. it is just amazing that... You know, I was going to say something, but you talked so long, I forgot it. So no <laughs> wonder you do all the talking. <laughs> you just, you ran my stream of consciousness off the track. Right off the road. So <laughs> I, I have somebody at work who uh, will ask me a question, you know, through our uh, local in, instant messaging or send me an email and I'll be doing nine other things. And five hours later, I'll get back to her and, and the, she'll say, you know, I, I've figured it out while I was waiting for you. And and so she now accuses me. That's your plan, isn't it? You wait long enough that you think when I come back to it, uh, when you come back to me, I will have figured it out. So that's that's what I do. I just talk long enough that you forget what you were going to say, and I rule the airwaves yet again. Yes. Darn you. Uh. So uh, I may not be worthy enough to, uh, to rule all of the internet, but uh, I, I am worthy in some respects. But I couldn't pick up Thor's quote-unquote hammer from this guy. I saw this video. It was all over the web. It's actually pretty darn amazing. A guy built a working hammer that only he can lift. Yeah. Um, it, props to this guy. He's This is awesome. So, you know, um, I was trying to remember, and I, I didn't want to look it up, but, you know, uh, if anyone if anyone be worthy to possess the th- power of Thor, basically they can lift the hammer. So this guy dev- made a hammer that looks like Thor's hammer, but it is basically one powerful electromagnet, and it has a fingerprint scanner. So if you put it on something sufficiently uh, heavy metal and you, you turn it on, then you can't lift it unless your fingerprint matches and then it turns the electromagnet off and you can then pick it up. So only, only, you know, those who have the right fingerprint can lift it. So I just, I just thought it was pretty cool. So he built it with a capacitive handle so that touching it is what turns on the magnet. So it's not just running the batteries down all the time. So when you touch the handle, you turn on the magnet. One of the guys, I'm sure he was an engineer, uh, figured this out. And so he just kicked the hammer off the piece of metal and then picked it up. 
So he cheated and and beat Thor's hammer. And I love that. So the, the guy, the engineer had all these people going and another engineer, engineer came along and solved the problem. It's great. <laughs> But yeah, it was a it was an Arduino processor when he put his thumb on it, and that was part of the giveaway because it took so long. He used such a low powered machine that it took a long time. If he'd used a faster fingerprint reader, probably nobody would have figured it out. He would have just grabbed it. But he was putting his thumb on a specific place and waiting long enough uh, to pick it up. But yeah, great idea, Thor's hammer um, in reality. So if he would have been a better stage musician, he would have grabbed it and started talking and waxing about how awesome he was. And then said, okay, now I'm going to try to pick it up. And then it would have lifted right off. So, you know, a little bit better, uh, stage presence. And he would have probably kept the gag up longer. And of course, it's also pretty obvious that it's on the only piece of metal anywhere around. Right. Uh, but great, I mad props to him. I bet it's heavy because uh, uh, it had uh, a couple of magnetos from uh, microwaves and then the batteries. It probably weighed a ton. Well, yeah. not a ton, but a lot. All right, that's it. That's your news. Uh, it wasn't all news. It was some olds, and it was that's your discussion for this week. Uh, so now let's talk a little bit about history. Seth, what happened this week? In history. All right. I found out that this week in 1996, so 19 years ago, the pre release of KDE was released. So, you know, basically the beta um, that happened October the 14th, 1996. Uh, 1.0 came out, I believe it was in December, but the first really usable release happened this week in history. And it's a pity that Chris isn't here because that is his beloved. Uh, desktop environment kde i'm still a gnome guy probably always will be a gnome guy but some of the i actually like the earlier kd stuff kde stuff better than the newer stuff yeah um, yeah i probably first tried it in 99 2000 so it had been around a few years but yeah 1996 um it's not that old <laughs> and yet in computer terms it's ancient yeah i mean wow think about that was uh, well windows 95 was out by then Right. And they were trying, they were basically copying Windows 95, which is, you know, it's an interesting, we've had this discussion before. Um, One of the knocks about uh, open source software, Linux in particular, is that it's derivative. All they do is copy other people's stuff. But then when they do something that isn't exactly like Microsoft, well, it's too confusing to use. It's not familiar enough. It needs to, it's too hard uh, to learn something new. So it's a, it's literally a case of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You can't, um, a thing unique because then it's too different and you can't make something that everybody can use because then it's too unique. Yep. That's, I mean, that's, you know, well, and the thing is, you know, even the original Apple and Microsoft, they were copying, uh, Xerox. Right. So every, somebody does something and everybody else copies them the next time around somebody else does something and the guy who innovated over there copied them it's just a round robin of you know it's probably the same guy saying i'm giving microsoft the lead this time and i'm giving apple the lead this time and i'm giving and it's the same guy right you know it's the same smart computer at the center of the world that is actually controlling our lives so what one of my favorite lines from bill gates i'm paraphrasing is uh uh Apple says that we uh, stole from them. The way I look at it, we both had this rich neighbor named Xerox, and when Microsoft broke into the house to steal from them, they found that Apple had already ransacked the place. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, man, that's so true. 
That makes me like Bill Gates even more. So, I mean, not just because he's, but because he had the sense of humor about it. Uh, pretty cool stuff. I like that. All right, Seth, what do you have for your show closing spectacular this week? Well, you know, we talked about old versions of Windows. So if you click on this link, it's basically a Java, JavaScript that shows you what Windows 1.01 looked like from 1985. <laughs> So you can, uh, you know, um, you could go and click on whatever. Oh, it's clickable. And- it's functional. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's Windows one point oh one. Would you look at it today? You go, oh my gosh, this is crap. I mean, you even have a B drive option. That's how old it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there you go. That's the that's my weird link to kill your productivity. As you can see, you know, show your kids. This is what I never saw because it was on a later version when I got there. But this is what started it all. Windows 1. Point, you know, you move the decimal over and you got 10.1. So all it, look at what moving a decimal gets you. It goes from this to Windows 10. Oh, and so you've got different versions of the software you can load. So right now I'm looking at uh, uh, PC, PC DOS 2.0. Uh, I can run Microsoft Adventure. Uh, I can load that. So those are the things that are in the the software. I just mounted the disk at Microsoft Adventure in Drive A. That is so cool. Um, so if I click on the A drive now, I should. Oh wow! It it's so amazing that what was at one time the premier operating system uh that microsoft could create at this time the mac was blowing them out of the water but the premier operating system that microsoft could create can be run in a browser in javascript yep so you know this is this is kind of a this is something neat to see and look at and go wow you know Back when I used Windows 3.1 and 3.11, I would be much more at home in there. Now I'm like, wait a minute, what? How do I? What do I do here? Um, but yeah, there's my show closing spectacular for the. I'm sorry, I'm playing reversey. Uh, you go ahead and continue with the show. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is cool. Um, it and if you look, it shows it like what it would look like loading up first. Of course, obviously it does it much faster now, you know, otherwise you would have turned it on and went and made babies and come back. (laughs) (laughs) It would have taken forever to load. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Today I get frustrated if my machine takes more than 30 seconds to load, you know, back when I was, uh, 10 and I was playing with my TRS 80, um, I would push play on the tape deck and go outside and, and shoot some basketball and come back as it was loading. So it's amazing how things change. And yet they're still the same. We're still impatient. We still complain. I probably right. complained less back then than I do now. As the expectations yeah. have increased, so has my complaining. Right. And it, it has expectations increased, your complaining is exponential. Exactly. It's like, whoo. So now, you know, I complain. I don't even need a reason. to. I'll complain because there's nothing to complain about. Today. <laughs> I just wish I had something to complain about. Uh, all right. This is the part of the show where I tell you how you can combat uh, combat feedback to us. You can go to the uh, uh, the website, elementop.com. Click the Contact Us button at the top of the page. That will send me a nicely formatted email that gets priority in my inbox. If you want to do it yourself, if you want to send something to all three of us, that's edl at elementop.com. That will send an email to all three of us, and we will all see it. 
If you want your voice to appear right here alongside of ours, you could call 559-IAM-OPIE and leave us a voicemail on our Google Voice account, and we will play it on the show. We love hearing from you. We truly do. We've uh, The... Uh, feedback box has been pretty full lately and i love that uh but uh, we could always use more i'd love to do another full-on listener feedback show we've been getting three or four or five in not enough to do a full show i'd like to do that in the near future uh so check it out and next week we will actually have a listener guest um i'm not sure we've ever done any on this show on my taiwan tech show we did a few listener spotlights which is actually how i came to know chris he was a listener spotlight on the taiwan tech and then later we did the whole show uh, everyday linux with him so uh, we've got a listener coming on, and if you want to do that, uh, check. The, uh, you're welcome to let us know too. We love having uh, listeners uh, feedback to us and tell us how we're doing, even if you're not kind about it. I still uh, read those and uh, and appreciate it. So, uh, Seth, thank you as always for being the amazing host that you are. Uh, 100% faithful, just like Horton the elephant. Uh, you said what he what you meant, and you meant what you said. Uh, so, uh, listener, thank you for hanging out with us. We did have a couple of people drop by the, the live uh, stream, but they didn't stick around long. Uh, check us out uh, every Sunday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, um, or around that time. We do the show. We love to interact with you in the chat room. So check it out. But for now, I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Everyday Linux.